Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, Jono. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to uh, episode uh, 208. I've uh, stopped uh, I've stopped trying it's to... It's chapter eight. It's chapter, chapter eight. eight. That's what it is. Sure. Yeah. Chapter eight of the sure. bullet catch. It seems cruel to make you do this every single episode, but... You as know, long pe- as you're doing it, which is everything, really. As long as you do everything, I'll continue to show up. I don't mind showing up. I just don't want any uh, responsibilities whatsoever. Is that fine? It is absolutely fine. It's absolutely fine. Well, this I'll is going to be... Who stirs the tanks on Apollo 13? I don't want to be Jim Lovell. I don't want to be the guy who's got to make decisions. I want to be the guy who says, when asked, what did you do? Nothing. I just stirred the tanks. That's me. I'm that guy. I, I want very little responsibility. And so far, you have respected that. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Well, we have a really interesting episode today. It concerns uh, the TV show Penn & Teller Fool Us. A surprising number of our guests this season and last season uh, have appeared on Penn & Teller Fool Us. Our, our friends, uh, David Parr and Suzanne, to name just two. Winners both. Yes, winners yep. both. Carissa Hendricks. Carissa Hendricks, uh, Morgan and West, I think a couple times. David Regal, oh. Joshua Jay. All, all incredible uh, performers. What I find most fascinating about our guest today is that he is a world-class magician who is hired to work with the magicians and um, I wouldn't say coach them to fool Penn and Teller, but essentially coach them to fool Penn and Teller. It's a different kind of magic consultant. Uh, last two episodes, we've talked to magic consultants, uh, Jonathan Levitt Armstrong. and John Armstrong. Uh, if you haven't already, go to our YouTube page. We have a bonus video of John Armstrong from last episode talking about his experience on Fool Us. And everybody seems to have a great experience. I think even uh, David Regal was quoted as saying it's the best experience he's ever had doing magic on TV. Obviously, the goal is to fool Penn and Teller if you're just watching the show from the outside. But as many of the magicians and as our guest today is going to point out, yes, the plastic trophy is a wonderful thing, but that's really not the goal for most magicians. I'd love to fool Penn and Teller, but better than that, I'd love to be on this show and get something I can use to, to promote what I do in the real world. And boy, uh, our magicians getting that opportunity to walk away with sterling pieces of performance video on a nationally renowned television show with two of the greatest magicians living and working today. Yeah, it's, it's, it's terrific for them. And one of the reasons uh, they're so successful on camera is that uh, Mike Close works with them to make sure that what they're going to do is going to work on camera. Not only is Mike Close a world-class magician in his own right, but he has an encyclopedic knowledge of magic and can really help a magician who comes on that show refine what they're doing and give them the best chance to actually fool Penn and Teller. And he fits really nicely in our, uh, not only in, in the sense of what's a magic consultant, but also the idea of, of, of building a better magician, Yeah, which is another 
uh, sub-theme this year. Uh, just incidentally, uh, for podcast fans out there, Mike has his own podcast. It's uh, called Conversations with Close, and he has fantastic uh, interviews with some of the top magicians in the industry. It might be a little inside baseball for people not into magic, but if you're uh, into magic, I definitely recommend listening to Conversations with Close. But for our conversation in our podcast, uh, we opened with uh, the key question we've been looking at all season. So what we want to talk about with you is something magicians probably don't think about as much as they should, which is uh, how does magic change when you put it in front of a camera? The best example we have of that today of, of magic looking really good on camera is Fool Us. And I'm sure that is by design. That just didn't happen. So let's just start kind of at the beginning with your story. How did, how did you get involved with Fool Us? Well, I had known Penn and Teller since the oh mid-80s, I'm sure. I knew Johnny Thompson since 1976, so we were old friends. And at the time, I moved to Las Vegas in 1998. And once I got there and was there for a little while, uh, Johnny suggested to Penn and Teller that uh, I come on board as one of the consultants or whatever you want to call it, brain trust designing new tricks for Penn and Teller. So, you know, we would meet regularly. Sometimes we would meet and talk about things that they had to do for a commercial or something like that, or some other presentation. Other times it was just brainstorming in their office about new effects. And then a lot of it was R&D, just working things out that uh, they had planned for the show. So I was there when the um, cell phone in the fish was developed. As a matter of fact, I was the one who suggested using a close-up method on stage to accomplish that trick. Uh, I worked on TSA. I worked on the vanishing pygmy elephant, although that would, took so long to come to fruition that I no longer lived in Las Vegas by the time they put that in the show. I had moved away. I'm in Canada now. Anyway, so we had this very, very good working relationship. And Johnny and I have very had a very good working relationship simply because we had the same aesthetic approach to magic. We knew what we wanted magic to look like. Uh, for me, I got that uh, strongly from uh, the fellow who was my mentor, a guy named Harry Reiser, who lived in Indianapolis. But Harry, who was just a few years older than Johnny, was also Johnny's mentor when they were both in Chicago. And all of Harry's stuff goes back to Charlie Miller and Di Vernon. So Johnny and I looked at problems the same way. We looked at things the same way. So there weren't a lot of times when he and I uh, you know, sort of butted heads in terms of making a decision about something. So that was great. So the, the first season of Fool Us was shot in England. I don't quite remember the year. It might have been 2011 or something like that. I, I don't know. But I was not involved in that. They used Johnny as the magic consultant and a fellow named Paul Stone, who uh, is from the UK and was able to enlist the, you know, participation of some English magicians to be on the show. And then the show was canceled on the network there in England, but the CW ran reruns of it, you know, showed it, and it got good ratings. So they ordered more episodes, uh, and those were done in Vegas. Uh, season two was the first one shot in Vegas with Jonathan Ross as the host. And that's when they brought me on. So basically, Penn and Teller and Johnny pitched me to the producers, Andrew Golder, uh, Lincoln Hyatt, and Peter Golden. Anyway, and so that's when I started working on the show, and I've worked on it ever since. The um, interesting thing about it is, you know, I had not very much experience working in television. 
when we start when I started on this thing. I knew magic quite well, but I didn't know magic on television well. And so this has been a really great learning process for me in terms of figuring out what makes something work on television, especially something like Fool Us. You know, magic is pretty easy to make work on TV if you don't particularly play fair. Um, but Fool Us, I think one of the things that's so appealing about Fool Us is that the audience at home knows that we're playing fair because part of the part of the game is that this performer is trying to fool Penn and Teller. So we won't be cutting away from, you know, we never edit for deception. We may edit for time and to compress time a little bit, but we don't edit for deception. And uh, I think that's one of the things that makes the show so appealing. It is such a delight to watch that show. I'm a huge fan of the show and of of Penn and Teller. Um, Talk about how what they created is really unique, uh, I think, to the magic fraternity, but also just in terms of um, a piece of television. Yeah, um, I believe the basic idea for it was Penn's. And what was has always been interesting about working with Penn is because Penn's background is not from magic. Penn's background is from juggling. So when Penn comes up with an idea for something, it is for the most part driven by an intellectual concept rather than, hey, let's do a version of this trick the way a lot of magicians think about these things. Because of that, most of the time when Penn comes up with something, I can't go running back to Tarbell to figure out a method for doing it because nobody's done it. And that's the case with this show. Now, to be honest with you, I didn't watch the first season of Fool Us when it aired, and I really wasn't interested in it because I didn't like the title. Because, you know, I'm somebody who has spent most of his life out performing in front of people, and the fact that you are going to fool people is the thing that divides you as the performer from the audience. It separates us. It is not a shared experience. It can be, but you always have this thing hanging in the background of, well, this guy's going to trick me. This guy's going to fool me. So to, to put that emphasis on that aspect of magic, I wasn't too crazy about. But what I found out was that if you want to pitch a television show to a TV network and you walk in the door and say, hey, I, I got this great magic uh, variety show that I want to do for you. No, we, we don't want a magic show. Oh, but wait, but wait, but wait, but wait. It's interesting because the magicians come on and they try to fool Penn and Teller. Oh, it's a contest. Oh, well, we understand contests. Yeah, and then Penn will talk about the act and sort of talk about how the guy did it. Oh, the mass magician. We understand the mass magician. Okay, fine, we'll buy your series. But of course, none of that's actually true the way it all works out. I mean, we try very, very hard not to, you know, we, we dropped hints with this, coded language that that we use. And I can tell you a little bit more about that if you're interested. But uh, the way the show has worked out and the thing that, that magicians need to understand is it is such a boost to their brand to be on the show that it really doesn't make any difference if they fool Penn and Teller. The idea is to come on and do a great job for the audience at home. And if you end up with a piece of plastic, well, that's delightful. But if you don't, you don't. And you never know what's going to fool Penn and Teller and what isn't. There's all kinds of things that go on there. So, you know, we try very hard. People who've done a lot of television, people like David Regal, says it was the best 
television experience he's ever had. It's a group of people, and all we're concerned about is making the performer look as great as they could possibly look. And so my job in that capacity is, uh, it's really in three parts. The first part is when acts submit their videos to the producers, Andrew and Lincoln look at those videos first, find ones that they uh, are interested in, and then they send those links to me and I do an analysis of the magic. So what am I looking for? I'm looking for several things. Is the effect different? Is, uh, is this something we've seen before? Uh, am I fooled by what they do? Now that doesn't happen a lot, but I'm happy to say that every season there's five or six guys who do something on the show that the first time I watch it, I go, oh, I'm not exactly sure what's going on here. And that's a great thing. That's a really great thing for me. It makes me feel wonderful after this many years of being interested in magic to be able to get fooled every now and then. It's a great, great feeling. So when they submit their audition, they don't tell you how they're doing. And At so that moment, they do not. Okay. Um, but if we express an interest in the trick, we may ask for further clarification about the method. There's sometimes I see something and I go, you know, this is just too clean. This is either using a stooge or an instant stooge or something's going on, a pre-show thing. And then we need clarification. And sometimes I'm wrong. And that's so I go, oh, good. Well, this is something brand new. But then we will discuss method, obviously. And the one thing about discussing method is it's like a non-disclosure agreement. Everybody who works on the show knows that these guys' secrets are important to them. Nobody talks about anything. I don't talk about anything. You know, I mean, I, if, if I would be allowed to talk about things, I would sell the secret to Boris Wilde's trick, the uh, card at uh, any number that he did that was so good. But I don't, because they're intellectual property. We just keep it to ourselves. So what's my job? So I do this analysis of the thing. I look for weaknesses, and I can talk about that a little bit more in a moment. I look at what kind of problems they're going to be shooting this on television, and in particular, shooting it on the Penn & Teller stage, which is huge. So every now and then, a, uh, a stage act will do something. So if you can imagine the Magic Castle, Palace of Prestidigitation in the Magic Castle. So that has a stage, a relatively small stage, but it's a stage where you can bring the curtains in like a proscenium. And sometimes guys will send stuff where they need to be ditching things or handing things off to assistants. Well, that doesn't work on our stage. You can't get anything on or off stage particularly easily. So that's something I'm looking for. Uh, if the trick is particularly angly, and a lot of people are used to doing Zoom stuff now, so it looks great from this camera, but not so good from the way we shoot, which is nine cameras all over the place. So I'm looking at things like that. I'm looking at technical things. Are the best techniques being used? If it's the best technique, is the guy performing it the best way, the guy or gal performing it as well as possible? So I'm doing all these things. I'm, I'm really fixing the magic if I can. And that's the first thing. So then I send my notes about that, which incidentally also include suggestions for the bust. So you may think that that information happens live, but I've already thought about it for three or four months, writing notes of how we can code this thing, you know, to the people, you know. You, how you, you make Penn look very clever. Yeah. I mean, we spend a lot of time thinking about those things because and the reason for that is and this has purely happened over time 
there isn't time to think about that stuff under the pressure of the cameras rolling. I mean, what people, a lot of people don't know is the interview with Allison can sometimes run between five and 10 minutes live. It's only 45 seconds when you watch it on TV, but there's a lot of time that goes back and forth. So that's my first thing. My second function is as acts are being hired, I will get on them on, uh, with them on Zoom and uh, you know, trying to get everybody as polished up as they can possibly be. So that's the second thing. Um, like I do lots of Zoom calls. And then the third thing is when we're actually shooting the show there. And then, of course, as we're doing that, just so everybody understands the process, uh, while Allison is interviewing the act, uh, Andrew Golder and I are listening to Penn and Teller discuss the trick. We say nothing. We say nothing until they have reached a conclusion about how they think things work. Now, that's really the moment when the judging happens. So a lot of magicians think the judging happens in the discussion between Penn and the act. It doesn't. Whether or not this guy has fooled Penn and Teller is decided before even Penn opens his mouth to talk to him. Because we'll do one of two things. If they're way off base, then they'll go, we think it's this. And Andrew will go, nope, you're completely wrong. Mike, explain it to him. So then I talk to them about it. And now we adjust the language because we want to figure out a nice dramatic way to get to that thing. And a good way to do that is for Penn to ask a question that will get a no response. And then, you know, then we're off to the races. One of the things that has happened is that we can, we tend nowadays to use less and less of the coded language simply because so many acts that are on the show now, English is their second language. So how are you going to use puns and wordplay for people who don't speak English well? So we've had to cut, we have alternative ways. That's of, of no big interest to anybody else, but there are ways that we uh, solve this problem. The, the bottom line to that particular part of the discussion is it is, I believe now the most fair procedure that we can possibly have because I've got the performers back. If Penn and Teller are actually fooled, then a trophy will come down. If Penn and Teller actually aren't fooled, then there won't be a trophy. But it's it's really a just, sort of what I want to call it a righteous decision when it happens now. So that's basically the three roles that I play on the show. So just to get a little inside baseball here on it. So there are times when Penn will say to the contestant, we think you're using a double back card. And the contestant will say, no, I'm not. And then they'll go, okay, you fooled us. But at that point, he kind of already knows, right? Uh, he absolutely knows. Yeah, that's what I figured. Well, it, now, see, it depends on what season you're talking about. Because okay. these, these are sort of um, changes that have come about, uh, well, I guess, in the years since Johnny uh, Thompson died. But for me, the for me, that part of the show gave me heartburn. Because, you know, and in particular, when there hadn't been enough when there hadn't been a clear strategy worked out. And again, this is what I'm talking about with something that Penn came up with. I can't go to Tarbell and find the best way to adjudicate a magic game show without giving things away. You show me what volume that's in. It can't even do it on the radio, less television. Anyway, so this has evolved. Uh, there was simply too much fog of war going on when this hadn't been worked out enough. And that's why every now and then in the early seasons, you might say to me, how did such and such manage to fool Penn and Teller? 
And I would say, well, there's a story behind that. Mm. I can't tell you that story, but there's a story <laughs> behind that. Uh, but those type of things uh, happen uh, never. No, it just doesn't happen. Can you talk about uh, what happened with Andy Gladwin? Because he was just on a different podcast talking about being called back to reshoot. Uh, is that something you're allowed to talk about? Yeah, I think so. And we have done this with other acts. And basically, the, the whole thing about it was Andy's trick. It's a really complicated trick. I mean, you know, it's as you would suspect when you look at something like that, there's things going on. And so as Penn and Teller were talking about it and came to a conclusion about it, I said, well, I don't think you've got it. And they, well, yeah, it's this and this. But I couldn't explain it well enough to them to understand, you know, that they didn't. So they busted him and, you know, he walked off. But then we talked about it a little bit more. But then Andy went back to his room and Penn and Teller came back out and said, we need to reshoot this because we had it completely wrong. We, we didn't we didn't think it was that at all. They're stand up guys because they could have well, really because let's move know. on. Uh, so yeah. very kind of them. So the way Andy explained it was he was back in his room. He'd thrown the props away. Uh, he was getting ready to go out. He got a call and said, we have to reshoot the ending. And yeah. he had no idea. So he mm-hmm. put everything back together and went back mm-hmm. on the stage. And, you know, they reshot the ending. And all of a sudden, he had a new answer, which was, you fooled us. Yeah. And I think they probably just wanted to get the most surprise out of him they could. Oh, absolutely. That's exactly why they, we did it yeah. that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it does go to show it's a completely honest process. If anyone questions it, it's like, well, obviously it's honest because why would you go to the trouble of calling back? Right, exactly. And, you know, it's it's the game part of it, which is, you know, interesting to people and what have you. And, you know, I it, it to some extent tends to limit the people that we can get on the show. There's some magicians who can't wrap their head around the fact that whether or not you fool them is not the point of being on the show. So they would prefer not to. I understand that. It's it's fine. But our goal in the show is not only to showcase the magicians in the finest way that they can. I mean, I, I think we shoot magic better than anybody shoots magic right now. When you work with an act, I, uh, Joe Blow uh, has been chosen to come on Penn & Teller uh, because of something he has sent in. You look at it. Uh, do you coach this person up? Do you yeah. look at their method and say... No, they're going to absolutely tumble to that method. But if you did this, this, and this, uh, you'll get the same effect, and they may not get that. Is there that kind of a process going on? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We used to joke that uh, in the uh, earlier seasons of the show, it should really be called Mike and Johnny Fool, Pen and Teller. Um, (laughs) Because, you know, it's my job, and I want it to look absolutely great for several reasons. I I want people to have a happy experience being on the show. Number two, I want to make it as difficult as possible for the people who like to go through frame by frame trying to figure out how this stuff works. I don't want to make their job easy. So I'm going to use every bit of uh, deviousness that I have in my old body to try to work things out so they're really seamless. And yes, there is an enormous amount of coaching. I mean, just me sitting here with a deck of cards in my hands going, no, you hold them like this. This is the grip you need because, you know, this will work and this won't work. I mean, I was just talking with a fella and this leads into the magic on, on TV thing. I wish I knew as much about magic on TV 
not, uh, as I know now, back when I was doing videos for LNL, because there's so many mistakes I made. You know, the problem with doing a magic video, if you're not somebody who does magic on TV, is you're used to performing for real people. And the thing is that the human eye is so much more sensitive to being able to focus in on things than a camera is. So consequently, if you want the audience to know the name of a card and your weight, you know, what I would normally do as a close-up performer is I just move it from side to side so everybody at the table could see what it is. But if you make that gesture on TV, it's just a blur for the camera. So you know, it's these small points of stopping and making sure that the camera can focus in on what's going to happen that are important. The other thing that happens on TV for close-up guys is there is no misdirection. Misdirection absolutely is gone when you do magic on TV. Mm. And by that, I mean, if I'm working in a restaurant and I'm standing, which is one of the reasons I always stood when I performed, and I've got people seated at a table then if I'm talking to somebody to my right and I suddenly turn to my look, turn my head to the left and I call one of the spectators by name, then everybody's eyes is either going to hit my eyes and then hit his eyes. And when that happens, I have a shadow zone where I could do something, you know, get a break or palm a card or whatever it is. But that gives me a shadow zone to work in because of the way people's eyes work. It does not happen on television. Once you draw the rectangle around the action, every bit of information in the frame is of equal importance. Mm. And so there's some things you simply can't misdirect against. And sometimes this requires a lot of ingenuity. One of the acts, his trick required a move that you actually cannot get away with on television. You can do it easily live, but it just flashes like crazy. And I figured out a way to do it on television. So, I mean, it was a real interesting, and he ended up fooling Penn and Teller with. And one of the great things for me was, as I was listening to them talk, when they went back to their chairs, the, one of the, the first thing Teller said was, well, he couldn't be doing, and it was the name of the move that the guy actually did. And they just didn't see it. They just didn't see it. So anyway, these are challenges. Sometimes I solve them. Sometimes I don't solve them. But it causes me to think in, in different ways. I've got a problem I'm working on for another guy now. He was doing a routine that involved doing a, a pass, a classic pass, twice. And you can't do that on camera. You can do it maybe if you're standing. But he was seated. And you just can't get the angle to do a classic pass. So it passes muster. So... Uh, the other day, he and I spent, you know, a little more than an hour or so going on other, other alternatives that uh, would be would, would work on television. Um, our friend Suzanne was on an early, maybe season two, mm -hmm. season three, uh, and she tells the story of demonstrating what she was going to do for Johnny. And he said, uh, that's terrific, unless you want to fool them. Uh, you're not going to fool them with that. And I believe she kind of went off and came up with her, with her own method. But I'm guessing that now... It's kind of permeated the idea of fooling them isn't necessarily the goal, right? Fooling them is absolutely, and, and here's the reason why fooling them can't be the goal. There are lots of card tricks that you could see, and at the end of it, you go, well, I don't know how he found my card. Is it entertaining television? Absolutely not. So the first, the first goal is, is this entertaining, engaging television? You know, it's and I, I say to the guys when I work with them, you have to remember that it's not like working in the close-up gallery 
of the Magic Castle. Because if you're boring people in the Magic Castle close-up gallery, it isn't easy to escape. You'd have to stand up, make your way through the crowd, and go through that sliding door that lets out by the Vernon cubbyhole there. So, you know, whatever you do has to be engaging. And there are times, of course, when guys come up with stuff that is entertaining, it is engaging, just like uh, Andy Gladwin's trick, where the method is also new and different and really interesting. So, you know, we'd like people to fool them, you know, if they can. And if I can figure out a way to make it more seamless, I will certainly help the contestant do that. You know, I, I, I want them to succeed. I mean, I, it's true. I've never been given any of the 12 trophies that I deserve by now, but that's okay. I'm not bitter. I'm not a bitter old man up here in Canada. Are there other misconceptions that magicians have about the show that they, they learn quickly aren't uh, what they thought? Well, I don't know. I think the judging was one of the big misconceptions. Uh, and certainly, I understand why this would come about because of the like the fog of war thing I mentioned earlier, where, where mistakes were made, where I think things went in a way that it shouldn't have gone. But we all learn. I mean, this is a complete learning process. You know, the whole the whole process is and it, you know, it just gets it gets smoother, a little more efficient, I think, every time we do it. The hard part is just getting the performers, finding the performers. I mean, we've worked with over 600 people now. I mean, each season they book 62 acts, only 52 will air. Uh, and we do that just in case somebody, you know, has a disastrous problem and, and it can't work. Sometimes the problem is the magician. Sometimes the problem is outside of the magician's control. They like to have one card routine per show. But, you know, so that means the card guys are sort of fighting against each other to see who makes air, whoever has the best performance. You understand how that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so I don't think there's any other big misconceptions about the thing. Can you can you talk a little bit about what you think the show Foolish has done for magic in general or the magic fraternity? Well, I believe, number one, it has been a very positive in terms of the audience perhaps appreciating more than they did before the work that people put into these, you know, that it is magic isn't just running down to the magic shop and buying a trick. There's a lot more to it than that. And I think this comes across. Penn is, uh, you know, effusive with his, with his praise uh, for the people who come on the show. And they've gotten even more so since I guess a couple of seasons ago, uh, Penn tried to fool Teller and Teller tried to fool Penn. And they discovered how nerve wracking it is to be performing up on stage for each other. Uh, you know, it's different when they're just doing their act, but when they're trying to fool each other, it was a whole other dynamic. And so, you know, they really understand what the performers, you know, their headspace and how it's going there. I like how beautifully we shoot the show. Uh, our lighting designer, Matt, is fantastic. Our director, uh, Dennis Rosenblatt, is a, a genius with some of these things. And uh, like I say, we have nine cameras. So, you know, we're always looking to get, you know, where's the good shot? That's the other thing I watch, by, by the way, when they do the camera rehearsal before we tape the show, is just to see if there's a camera that's catching something that is bad. Now, it doesn't mean you have to move that camera. The director just has to know he can't use that shot. So I, I think, you know, it's, I think that's really good. I, um, it doesn't make magicians look tacky. It doesn't make magicians look stupid. And of course, this is the thing, you know, you watch TV 
I guarantee if there's a magician character, he's not probably going to be the hero. You know, he's going to be like Joe Bluth, you know, asking, well, where did the lighter fluid come from? You know, so. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Can you think of movies or TV shows, whether it's dramatic or, or reality TV uh, or, or movies uh, where you think uh, they got the, the world of magicians right and where they where they really got it wrong? Well, I don't I can't really think of any movie that actually got it right. Magic, for the most part. I'm also a musician. I'm a musician by training. And most of our lives as musicians and magicians is practice. And that doesn't really make for, you know, a, a wonderful television show. I've seen very few movies about musicians that I thought were any good. There's always this dramatic license that they take in terms of what is actually possible that someone could do. And that's, that's the thing that bothers me most is how unrealistic some of the effects are that uh, happen in the movies. So no, I, I, I you know, I, um, I worked with uh, Guillermo del Toro on Nightmare Alley that was shot here in Toronto. And uh, there was quite a bit of magic in the original script for that, but things got changed over time. And then Bradley Cooper and uh, Guillermo sort of re- imagined the character of Stanton Carlisle different than it was originally going to be. It was originally going to be that Stanton had a far deeper interest in magic that he had gotten when he was a kid. And that sort of fell away. But anyway, that would have been very, the things that I designed were, were to look good on camera and performable, but they were very, they weren't big spectacular things. They were just actual little bits of magic seasoning, I guess, is uh, in the show. So, you know, I think it's great that, you know, uh, magicians as a character have always been a popular thing, you know, back to uh, Clayton Rawson and the, and the Merlini uh, mysteries. You know, when I was a kid, I used to read those. But it's hard to pull it off in any kind of a way that actually resembles. And, I, you know, I think that's any profession is going to tell you that. I'm just guessing that the hospital shows I watch don't really represent life in a hospital or a law firm or, you know, a police state, you know, that everything gets changed for, you know, dramatic purposes. So it's fun to watch. You know, I'm just wondering if there's any industry that ever looks at a dramatic TV show or a movie about their business and thinks that they've got it nailed. I'm reminded of one of my favorite quotes from the Blake Edwards movie, SOB, when uh, uh, a cop is talking to one of the characters who's uh, in the film industry and says, tell Mr. Farmer, which is the producer, tell him uh, if he ever does a movie about cops, I got enough stories to fill a, to fill a steamer trunk. And none of that Serpico crap, the real cops, which is... Uh, for a, a, a joke in the 70s is a pretty good joke. You're absolutely right, though, because I, I have uh, many and varied interests, uh, as you well know. Yes. One of, one of them is Cowboys. And so I'm a big fan of the television show Yellowstone. But I was just on Facebook the other day and uh, stumbled on a, a, a thread by an actual rancher who is a friend of mine. And he posed this question. Do any of the other ranchers out there think that Yellowstone is in any way realistic in terms of what we do? And then there were pages and pages and pages of people saying, I stopped watching it. It's crazy. Nobody, this is the most ridiculous. And yet, you know, I enjoy yeah. every minute of it. So. Yeah, I think every profession has has to deal with that. And, and that's okay. Yeah. One of the things I've loved hearing from uh, Mr. Close 
was uh, about how early in the process he begins working out the coded language that Penn is going to use when talking to the magician about his or her effect and and, and what they know about it. When I first, uh, as you would say, tumbled to that, uh, I was, as a kind of an outsider in the magic world, I was able to get most of what he was saying. And it was just fascinating to me how little he had to say for them to go, yeah, yeah, you're right. You got it. You got it. I... Uh... I enjoy not only the fact that he is deeply involved in coding that language, but is also um, really helping magicians yeah. be successful in both facets of this. On the show, in terms of getting a piece of video that you can use uh, that will make you look good and promote your work for other uh, jobs, but also in trying to say, as, as, as Johnny Thompson said to our friend Suzanne, well, that's wonderful, unless you want to fool Penn and Teller. And, and that idea that, as he said in the interview, uh, it should, the first couple of seasons should have, be, should have been called uh, Johnny and Mike fool Penn and Teller, him being that involved, and uh, rather than just letting the chips, yeah, come on the show, chips are going to fall where they may. Yeah. Uh, I really like the fact, and it's got to come down, I would think, from... Penn and Teller and the producers, hey, we want these people to look good. We have no interest as some other uh, game showy kind of of make of, of finding somebody who simply should never have auditioned for this and making them look like a, an absolute idiot. Mm -hmm. We have no interest in that. We want these people to look good. We want the magic to be good. And then finally, yes, if they can fool them, great. So it's, I, I love the fact that they are taking that much care of the performers who are coming on the show. I, I hope it runs forever, but that's you just too. me. Me too. No, absolutely. It was great chatting with him, and I hope we have a chance to talk to him again in the future. His stories are great. His insights are great. And as a little treat for you listeners, he stuck around a little bit longer and chatted on some other uh, magic-related topics. And it, it, it was really me who drove that. I, I, I'm, I'm the sort of, uh, the minute somebody says, oh, I met, insert famous person name here, my general response is, were they nice? Were they nice people? Was he was was he a nice guy? And and I hate to ask that question of Mike Close in regards to Johnny Thompson and Penn and Teller and even our dear friend Eugene Berger, but that's essentially what I did. But it's worth listening to because he's so good and so bright and really getting a feel for the characters involved from inside where Mike is is cool for me. Yeah. So if you want to listen to uh, that extended conversation, you can find it on our YouTube page. It's a little bonus video where he does talk about Johnny Thompson, Penn and Teller, uh, Eugene Berger, and why uh, why Eugene wanted to sit down while performing Restaurant Magic and while, why Mike prefers standing up. There's a very interesting reason why he does that. So check out that link. We've also got a link in the show notes to Mike performing a pretty slick card trick, which he does not so surprisingly standing up. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, he's got his own podcast uh, and I've got a link to his website there. So absolutely give conversations with close uh, a listen. Anyway, it, it was really good timing having Mike uh, close on the show because we're now deep into the chapters in the bullet catch where Eli is actually consulting and working on a film set, helping his friend Jake perform magic. Uh, last episode, we listened to chapter seven in which he arrived on the film set for the first time and he met all the different players there. And we got a sense of what that uh, environment was like for him, which then takes us directly now into chapter eight. <laughs> Thank you.
The Bullet Catch, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 8 After a painfully slow six hours of watching them film the movie, I would have delighted in the rapid-fire pace of watching paint dry if it had been offered to me. I wasn't certain what my role on the set was, except to try to keep them from killing Jake, but if their weapon was boredom, they were well on their way to doing me in. I was in the throes of this lethargy when I glanced over to see that someone was sitting next to me in Jake's canvas chair, and it wasn't Jake. I recognized him as Arnold, one of the producers of the film who Lauren had pointed out to me earlier. He wore a loud and beautifully tailored Hawaiian print shirt, which may well have been custom-made by a genuine Hawaiian. He was a large man, balding, with wisps of graying hair fighting it out on the fringes of his skull. He was whispering into his cell phone with a hoarse, angry rasp that conveyed more anger than if he'd actually been shouting at the top of his lungs. No, you're wrong, my friend, he hissed. We're all about catering on this show, and if the quality of the pate sinks below the baseline I established one more time, heads will roll. Do you hear me? Heads will roll. He pushed the end button on the phone and glanced over at me, shaking his head like the embarrassed father of an ill-behaved kindergartner. How tough is it to get liver pate right, he asked, and I shrugged because I genuinely didn't know the answer. If we were going to have a conversation, and it looked like we were, I hoped the questions would get easier. You're the new magic consultant, right? Yes, I said, nodding, pleased we were now firmly in my conversational ballpark. The magic consultant. So, what's your theory? My theory? I repeated. He just hit one out of the park. My theory on what? On who killed Terry Alexander, he said with a grin. One of the world's great mysteries, never been solved. I think not being solved is the definition of a mystery, I suggested, but he didn't really seem to need my participation to keep the conversation rolling. He was one of those people who only needed a sounding board, and if I hadn't been there, he would have been just as happy talking to the tree behind me. That's the beauty of this movie, he continued, a truly great real-life murder mystery. Was it the ex-girlfriend, the manager, the current girlfriend, a wronged rival? His voice trailed off dramatically. Given that I knew none of those answers were correct, yet I couldn't tell him why, I didn't know how to respond. But apparently, a response from me was merely optional as he kept talking. We're even considering releasing the movie with four different endings, each one with a different solution. Never been done before. I think they did that with Clue, the movie, I offered, but he didn't register any reaction to my voice. Groundbreaking, he continued, unabated, each ending providing a completely plausible solution to the mystery. Never been done before. Actually, I offered, the novel The Poison Chocolates Case presented a murder with six completely plausible solutions, and that was written back in the 20s. That's our marketing strategy, he said, skating right over my words like there was no sound coming out of my mouth. That's the ticket. It'll put this little movie on the map. He finally stopped talking and looked at me, apparently waiting for a reaction of some sort. Sounds like a plan, I finally said. 
Damn straight, he replied as his phone began to buzz. Because God knows we need something to put this movie on the map. Hell, anything. He got up, pushing his bulk up out of the chair. Nice chatting with you. Try the pate, he added, beginning another harshly whispered conversation as he walked away. Moments later, I felt a vibration in my pocket, signaling I had, in fact, remembered to turn off the ringer. A crew member had made that mistake earlier, and Walter's sudden rage was terrifying. He went from zero to insane in no time flat, and it took Arnold, Donna, and the assistant director to calm him down, each pointing out that the scene was essentially silent and that no harm had been done. Walter calmed down almost as quickly as he had exploded, laughing off the incident, but it left a sour taste, and I made a mental note to always double-check the ring status on my phone. I pulled the pulsating phone out of my pocket as I headed away from the set. The cameras weren't currently rolling, but I didn't want to feel Walter's wrath if I was the moron who was still talking when they called for quiet on the set. I ducked behind a rustic shed and answered the phone. Before I was halfway through my hello, I was cut off by the rapid-fire barrage of words from the other end. Eli, honey, sweetie, I don't work for you, you don't work for me, we work for each other. We've got an opportunity. I drop everything when they call, put people on hold, stopped answering emails to make sure you're available as my number one client. I don't work for you, you don't work for me, we work for each other, isn't that right? Before I could agree or disagree, the voice continued. Anyway, it's a last-minute thing, a house party of some kind tonight in Kenwood. Can't beat that. One hour of walk-around magic paying top dollar. Ask for you by name. Let's hope you're available. Are you available, sweetie? Elaine, yes. Yes, Elaine, I'm available. Yes, I am, I said, quickly taking on the speech patterns of my agent, a world-class mile-a-minute talker. I had to make a conscious effort to slow down in the hope she would begin to mimic my more deliberate speech pattern. So, let me make sure I have this right. It's tonight in Kenwood, a house party, and they want some walk-around magic for an hour? Is that correct? Right on the money, honey. Before she could continue, I swiftly cut her off, talking as slowly as I could. That should be fine. Do you know what time they want me? And the address? I drew out each word slowly. Yes, yes I do, she said, slowing to a more leisurely conversation pace. I could hear her shuffling papers around her desk. I've got all the information. I'll email it over. That would be fine, I said patiently, like I was trying to calm a hyperactive puppy. Are they paying me on the spot, or did they prepay with you? For someone who made her living off a percentage of what her clients made, Elaine was notoriously poor at tracking the actual flow of money. They said they'd pay you at the gig, she said, now sounding almost sleepy. I told them you'd get me the commission. I said you were good for it. I'm sending the information now, she added. True to her word, a ping in my ear signaled the arrival of an email. Thanks, Elaine. Thanks for the call and for the gig. I don't work for you. You don't work for me. We work for each other, she said. Like Shalom, 
It had become her greeting at the beginning and end of every conversation, its meaning entirely dependent on its placement. The sound of a click, and then no sound at all, told me the conversation had ended and that Elaine had moved on to her next call. I've often questioned my need for an agent, as most of my work comes to me direct, either from the website, a referral, or repeat business. However, I've always liked the idea of having my own Broadway Danny Rose, even if she's actually a bottled blonde from Anoka with a motor mouth and a serious chocolate addiction. I was making a mental note to send her a box of her favorite Russell Stover candies along with her commission when I rounded the corner of the shed and came to an abrupt halt. Several yards ahead of me, I was surprised to see Jake and Noelle, the movie's lead actress, in the midst of what Harry would have called the full canoodle. That's his charming old-world expression for kissing that has gone above and beyond a friendly greeting. They were wrapped in an embrace that looked to be headed from PG-13 to R on its way to NC-17. They hadn't noticed my arrival, so I quickly stepped back behind the shed. I looked around for another exit route, and as I did... I was surprised to see Stuart, the writer. He wasn't looking at me. He, too, had spotted the necking couple. But unlike me, he didn't seem to be looking for an exit. He just stared at them, balling his fingers into tight fists at his side. I turned the other way and spotted a path that would take me away from this mini-drama. Before leaving, I took one last look to ensure I had gotten the details right. One more look confirmed it. Noelle, current girlfriend of Walter, the director, former girlfriend of Arnold, the producer, and Stuart, the seething writer hiding behind the tree, had taken up with yet another person on the set. Hollywood. You gotta love it. Later that evening, I pulled my car to a stop in front of the address for that night's last-minute gig. The large house sat, among other impressively large homes, nestled along a tree-lined parkway overlooking Lake of the Isles, one of Minneapolis's more lovely inner-city lakes. The house, like its neighbors, could be called a mansion. But this was in the old-world definition, not like the McMansion behemoths that had sprung on lots big and small around the city. I couldn't imagine anyone in this neighborhood clipped coupons or clicked groupons. I let the car idle as I double-checked the address. Something seemed off, and it took me a moment to realize that for a house in the midst of an alleged party, there were hardly any cars parked nearby and only two lights burning in the mansion's windows. I'd expected to see a steady stream of guests and the blur of valet parking staff as they ran up and down the street to park and retrieve each precious Lexus, Porsche, and Hummer. Instead, all that was visible was a light over the front door, giving off enough wattage to confirm the address and two other dim lights on the main floor. The rest of the house was dark. I have learned over the years that a dark house is not always a true indicator you're at the wrong place. I'm friendly with a married pair who constantly wage a war of lighting at their parties, with the husband insisting on bright illumination inside and out while the wife opts for candles and mood lighting. Most times, she's the victor, and I've attended more than one party at their home 
where the lights were so dim, several guests hadn't bothered to come to the door, thinking they'd arrived on the wrong night. Figuring that was the likely explanation for the low wattage at this house, I shut off the engine, grabbed my bag of tricks, and made my way up the long walk to the massive front door. The sound of the doorbell still echoed through the house when a squat and muscular man opened the door. He was the human equivalent of a fireplug, with a neck nearly equal to the width of his shoulders and a tightly trimmed hedge of red hair covering his apparently flat head. He stared at me for a long, ominous moment. Hi, I stammered. I'm the magician. I'm here for the party tonight. He gave me another long look, blinking slowly as if the words needed to be processed one at a time, then finally stood back and gestured for me to enter. I stepped into the foyer, a high-ceilinged room with a massive stairway straight ahead and several doors flanking both sides of the imposing hall. The house was dead quiet, with only the distant sound of voices and music barely audible, sounding like they were a long ways away. Without a word, he crossed the hallway and opened one of the large doors, turning and looking at me without any expression. Recognizing this was probably all the direction I was likely to be getting from him, I took a deep breath and stepped through the doorway into the dark room beyond. The primary light in the room was supplied by the streetlights outside, which were filtering through a set of gauzy curtains that covered the large front windows. The streetlights offered a small but not really helpful dim glow, not nearly sufficient given the size of the room. Once my eyes adjusted to the murky light, I saw there was in fact another light, if you want to call it that. It was a faint glow coming from a high-backed chair across the room. This also seemed to be the source of the voices and music which were faint but getting louder as I approached the chair. Looking around, I realized the chair seemed to be the only piece of furniture in the room. I suddenly realized why the entrance hall had seemed so large. It, too, had been devoid of furniture. I continued my trek across the large room, the hairs on my neck indicating I was as nervous as I thought I was. Rounding the chair, I discovered the source of the light was an iPad in the lap of a mere wisp of a man. He was as pale as a ghost, with skin pulled so tight over his slim frame it looked nearly translucent. His small frame was dwarfed in the large chair, and in the subdued light it was hard to tell where he ended and the chair began. His thin hair was nearly as white as his skin and barely covered his small head. Earbuds hung precariously from his tiny ears as he smiled and nodded along with the images on the iPad. I couldn't identify the exact movie he was watching, but it was in black and white, and one of the actresses on screen looked to be Myrna Loy. Perhaps this seriously thin man was enjoying one of the thin man movies. Before I could consider this further, he looked up at me his small, dark eyes revealing a strength and energy the rest of his body could only aspire to. Ah, he rasped, his voice a throaty growl, gesturing to a chair across from him, bringing to two the number of pieces of furniture in the room. Three, 
if you included the coffee table. Mandrake has arrived. Welcome, sir, welcome. I trust Harpo made you feel sufficiently at home? Um, sure, I said, moving as directed to the chair. Harpo, yes, he did. He touched the iPad screen, and the soundtrack abruptly ceased and set the tablet on the coffee table that sat between us. He watched me closely as I settled into the chair and placed my bag on the floor next to me. The glow from the iPad threw odd shadows on his already odd face. I'm here for the, um, party, I said, looking around the large room to see if perhaps a party had materialized in the last five seconds. Was it tonight you wanted me, or have I been misinformed? I came to Casablanca for the waters, he said with a sudden and surprising burst of energy, a smile forming on his thin lips, revealing pointed and yellowing teeth beneath. His voice shifted as if he were doing both sides of a conversation. The waters? What waters? We're in the desert. Took me a moment to recognize the quote. I was misinformed, I repeated, this time adding a poor Humphrey Bogart lisp to my reading. Casablanca, a classic. Ah, a movie fan. Excellent, he said, his smile growing into a large and grotesque grin. I'm a fan of movies and movie fans and magicians. Guilty as charged, I said, on both counts. He stared at me for a long moment. I looked around the large, empty room and then back in his direction, unnerved to see his gaze continued to be focused on me. So, where's the party? Excuse the, um, misdirection, he said, still grinning. There is no party to speak of. I wanted to talk with you and thought paying for your time might be the most expeditious method of achieving that goal. Talk to me, I parroted. About what? About whom, he corrected. About our mutual friend, the late Mr. LaSalle. Took me a moment to make the connection in my mind. Well, he wasn't really a friend, I began, but he waved a bony finger in my direction, and I shut up. At that moment, it felt like the right thing to do. My reasoning is simple. I thought it prudent to speak to the person the police turned to so quickly after his untimely demise. He put a spin on the word untimely, which produced an actual chill up and down my spine. My understanding is you were the first person they approached. I'm sorry, I said, making my voice sound as polite as possible. But who are you, actually? He smiled that spooky, toothy grin again. For the purposes of this conversation, let's say I'm Mr. Lime. Mr. Harry Lime. He leaned forward, clearly testing me. My mind spun, trying to make the connection he seemed so sure I would get. Harry Lime, I finally blurted out. Orson Welles, the third man. Exactly, he said. Harry Lime. Cuckoo clocks. The words rolled off his tongue in a manner just this side of obscene. Another chill shot up my spine.
Okay, Mr. Lime, I said, keeping my voice steady and positive. I don't mean to disappoint, but I really didn't know Dylan. As it turns out, he said, leaning back into the chair, neither did I. In fact, to such a degree, I had begun to call him Francis. The reference was lost on me, but I pushed on, feeling a strong urge to put as much distance as I could between myself and the late Dylan LaSalle. No, you don't understand, I continued. I wasn't a friend of Dylan LaSalle. Of course, he said, nodding in agreement. I understand. As it turns out, not many people were friends with Francis. I would count myself in that number. But, be that as it may, we had our dealings, and now he's dead. And there are loose ends to be tied up. What sort of questions did the police put to you, if I may ask? He folded his long fingers together, placing them on his pointed chin while patiently waiting for my response. For my part, I was having trouble remembering just what questions Homicide Detective Fred Hutton had put to me. Nothing in particular, I finally said, feeling his dark eyes boring holes through me. I'd seen him at a high school reunion the night he the night he was killed. They wanted to know who he had talked to, how had he seemed, that sort of thing. I see, the old man finally said, his voice now just a tad above a whisper. So tell me, who did he talk to? How did he seem? He paused for a moment and then gave what he probably thought was a reassuring smile. It wasn't. Mostly, he talked to the women at the reunion. He seemed upbeat, he drank a lot, and then he and his wife went home. That was the last I saw of him. That was the last most people saw of him, he said. I suppose so, I agreed. So, you and Francis weren't close? I shook my head. Not now, not ever. I hardly had anything to do with him in high school, and certainly nothing since then. I considered my answers so far, and then added, He seemed like a guy who was best avoided. Yes, the old man said, but sometimes those types of people can be very helpful in a pinch. He gave me another long look. I thank you for your time, Mandrake. See Harpo on your way out, and he'll see to it you'll receive your fee. The speed at which I stood up clearly indicated how quickly I wanted to leave. Oh, there's no charge, um, Mr. Lime, I said, picking up my bag. No show, no charge. His voice stopped me in my tracks. Oh, I won't hear of it, Mandrake. The tone was warm, but the underlying feeling was anything but. You will find, he continued, once you get to know me, that if I offer you money, you would be best to take it. And in the case of our friend Francis, if you take my money without my permission, you would be best to return it. But I didn't do anything to earn it, I said, almost pleading. Fair enough. Do me a trick. What? Do me a trick. Okay, sure, 
I said, starting to feel the first warning signs of flop sweat. What would you like? Cards? Coins? Rope? He smiled up at me, his eyes becoming thin slits. Surprise me. I sensed that in reality, Mr. Lime was not a fan of surprises, but for the moment I took him at his word. I racked my brain for something, anything I could do that would send me on my way in one piece. Uncle Harry always taught me, when in a pinch, go with the tried-and-true material. I wanted something surefire. I wanted something that would make Mr. Lime happy. And most of all, I wanted something that was guaranteed to get me out of there quickly. I also needed something that would play in the dim glow provided by the iPad on the table. Okay, I said, to make it fair, we'll use your deck of cards, the one there on the table. He looked down at the table, then looked back up at me. Mandrake, I don't have a deck of cards, he said, clearly puzzled. Sure you do. It's an invisible deck. I spotted it the moment I came in. I gestured again at the table. He looked again, then turned back to me, the beginnings of a smile forming on his thin, pallid lips. Oh, yes, he said, nodding. I see it now. It's invisible. Great, I said, trying to take the nervous waver out of my voice. Why don't you take the cards out of their box and give them a quick shuffle? He smiled up at me, and then ever so gently, he mimed, picking up the box, taking out the deck, and shuffling it. Should I cut it as well? He asked as he completed the shuffle. If you wish, I said. He pretended to cut the deck and then skillfully mimed squaring the cards. He looked up, patiently awaiting my further directions. Okay, I'm going to look away, I said. While I'm turned away, I want you to fan through the deck, pick out one card, memorize it, reverse it in the deck, and then put the deck back in its box. Got it? I think I understand, he said clearly beginning to relish his role in the trick. I turned away and could hear him chuckling, his laugh becoming a slight wheeze. After a few moments, he said, All right, it is done. I turned back, and he gestured proudly at a spot on the table where he must have set the invisible deck once he had completed his assignment. You picked one card and reversed it in the deck, I asked. I did he said, just as instructed. Well, you work with an invisible deck better than most, I said, going into my standard patter. For myself, I sometimes need a little help seeing it. For that, I use some magic wiffle dust. I reached into the front pocket of my sport coat and then mimed sprinkling magic dust over the spot on the table. I placed my hand over the spot and turned to Mr. Lime. Let's see if the wiffle dust has done its magic. I removed my hand, revealing a card box where none had been before. Mr. Lime gasped, which is the desired response for that moment in the trick. Now, what was your card, sir? Seven of clubs, he said confidently. I pulled the deck from the box and spread the cards out before him face up so he could see all the cards. Only one card was face down. I pulled that card out and handed it to him. He turned it over. It was the seven of clubs. 
Very impressive, Mandrake. Very impressive. I believe you have earned your fee, and my admiration, which, believe me, holds a much higher value. He was still chuckling over the card as I headed out of the room. I only stopped long enough for the silent thug in the hall, the aptly named Harpo, to hand me an envelope containing my fee in cash. I then nearly ran down the long sidewalk to my car and drove away without regard to public safety or the posted speed limit. It wasn't until the house was several miles behind me that I stopped to consider some of the movie-related nicknames the man had seemingly pulled out of the ether. Harry Lime, the charming but morally corrupt character from The Third Man, seemed an apt moniker for my spooky host. His assistant had none of the charm of Harpo Marx, but shared his penchant for silent communication. Calling me Mandrake the Magician wasn't particularly clever, but was certainly in the same general movie realm as the others. The only name I couldn't successfully connect was his nickname for Dylan LaSalle. I was still thinking about the name Francis as I parked the car and headed up to my apartment, glad to have the evening's bizarre gig safely in the past. The mysterious Mr. Lime makes his first appearance uh, along with his henchman, Harpo. But I'll tell you what, of all the characters you have created, uh, Mr. Lime was the toughest voice for me to do and sustain. Uh, and, and usually, if you remember, there was lots of coughing and lots of water whenever we would do sequences with Mr. Lime. It just shredded my voice for some reason. And I should be a smarter performer than I am, but I'm not. It, I just, I, I am what I am. It's interesting. It didn't sound that hard to me when you were doing it. <laughs> um, but I have the edits to prove it, that it yeah. did take a while. Great character. He's a, some love him, some hate him. Um, he he plays a very big part in this book. He will appear again in The Miser's Dream. And then there's a nice little coda about his relationship uh, with Eli in the eighth book, the short story called The 38 Steps uh, that uh, sort of brings everything full circle. I, I love The 38 Steps because although Mr. Lime is in it, he doesn't speak. Just... That was my <laughs> gift to you. <laughs> I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I'm just a guy who shows up. And who does a few tricks. All right. Well, we're going to do some more tricks in the next episode when we continue our building a better magician theme by uh, chatting with the man who we realized while speaking to him is really the reason that Eli Marks exists at all and that this podcast exists at all. Uh, There would be no Eli Marks without a man named Larry Kahlo. Amen to that. Larry Kahlo is the owner and proprietor of the nation's oldest continuous magic store, Eagle Magic. We both have spent time in that store, and I certainly spent a lot of time in the original downtown store uh, since high school when I used to uh, go in there for props for the movies I was shooting. Yeah, uh, being in that magic store was flat out magical as a kid. I mean, there was so much to look at and so much to marvel over. And Larry was so good at demonstrating magic, if, if not for me, for anybody who came in, that it was, you know, every time I went, there, it was like a show. So yeah. Yeah. God bless Larry Kahlo for all he has done for the magic community here in Minneapolis and how that spilled out into the world. 
Yeah, absolutely. So next episode, we'll be chatting with Larry Kahlo, and we've got a little video of uh, Larry working some magic as a special bonus as well. So join us uh, next episode, uh, episode uh, 209. Chapter 9. There you go. When we'll talk to Larry Kahlo and uh, continue on our bullet catch journey. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to uh, subscribe. And if you got an extra second, give us a rating. That'll help people find us and we'd appreciate it. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.